Please open your Bible, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, the notes this morning's message are in the bulletin. And as always, the text this morning's message is in the back of the notes. <clears throat> and while you turn there, let me give you an idea of what the schedule for the next couple weeks holds um, in regards to the sermon. I think it's going to take us three weeks to close out Ephesians chapter 3, to finish the first half of the book. And then, God willing, our plan is that long-delayed series um, on dealing with sort of understanding, responding to um, issues going on in the culture, issues that are starting to creep into the church, dealing with abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism will be, um, and we'll give you some warning in advance about that. The, The working title of that is Creaturely Identity and Cultural Insanity, but I'm sure that can be improved upon. And then, on the... You don't need to laugh that hard. It's okay. Um, and then on the other side of that, we'll dive into Ephesians uh, chapter 4 in the second half of the book. That's the working plan right now. Um, we find ourselves, after two weeks of introduction, as Paul, at verse 1, started to head towards prayer and then digressed into um, some other matters, now returning to what he started chapter 3 with a prayer. All of chapter 3 in that sense can be viewed as the preparations for, introduction to, and then this pastoral prayer. And it, it is significant in this placement in the book. It bridges chapters 1, 2, and 3 with chapters 4, 5, and 6. It bridges the doctrinally focused section with the um, Christian living section. It bridges them wonderfully. And so while we... Look at this. I want us to come at this um, morning, the next few weeks, learning how to pray better. And I don't mean the words you use. There's different, you know, you can hear people pray and you've got a fair idea where they got saved, what culture they're discipled in, whether they're using Elizabethan English, whether they say the word just 23 times in this prayer, however it is. And I'm not suggesting there's right or wrong ways to pray in that sense. Use your vernacular, use your grammar. Use the way you speak. But what we're praying for, that the scripture gives us tremendous amounts of examples for. And, and, I, and I fear that, not that what we're praying for most regularly is bad, but the good is the eternal enemy of the best. And the things that we see modeled in scripture for prayer, rarely in my prayer life spring up naturally. We're rarely in prayer groups come up. And so I want us to be instructed what to be praying for in addition to the other things we're praying for, to learn from Paul's model of prayer. So I'd like to begin by reading Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and then we'll begin our time. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him... Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, we too bow our knees before your great throne. And we too recognize that you are our great Father. 
You are our creator. We pray that you, by your spirit, might strengthen our inner man. That Christ might dwell in our hearts more fully through faith. We pray that we, too, would become firmly rooted and grounded in love. And that from that vantage point, that we might see an ever-growing vista of the glory of your love in Christ for us. To your great glory and our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer is no small matter. And it's, and it's remarkable how many inspired prayers are in Scripture. You almost start to think God cares about how we pray. And again, the how I'm getting at is not the, the phrases you use, the, the nomenclature you use. It's not more sanctified to use these and thous. But what we pray for and how we pray. And one of the things that I'm constantly challenged by, impressed with, with Paul, is the level of specificity, particularity to his prayers. If you're like me, if you're praying sort of casually, lazily, rushedly, you sort of throw out these big shotgun prayers. Lord, bless them. You just name a group of people, you know. Christians in China, Lord, bless them. Lord, my family, give them grace. Those are good prayers. I'm sure God honors them. They're nothing like the prayers I see in Scripture. And so Paul's prayer here is ridiculously specific. I mean, and look at this. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May I suggest to you, you don't spontaneously pray this way unless you've been thinking about others and what they need. It's not in your notes, but one of the things that's been even um, challenging me as I've throughout the weekend been contemplating this passage is Paul can only pray this way for the Ephesians because he's been giving consideration to what they need. In my own experience, I think the sort of shotgun prayers come out because I haven't. I haven't given much thought to what people need. And so I just trust that God knows what's best. So because I haven't given much thought to what my family needs, Lord, give them what they need. Because I haven't given much thought to what particular types of grace and mercies and help this church needs. I just sort of speak broadly. I think you can only pray like this with this level of precision when you've given thought to what others need in, in Christ. So we're going to look at this in, in five parts, the first two this morning. I, I put all the outline here because this is one, another one of Paul's big, long sentences. And your various translations will suggest various ways to outline it. This is one of the texts where a little knowledge of Greek is helpful in structure. Paul's structure jumps out much more clearly as I've been translating it. Um, Paul's prayer, we'll just look at the big overview, is there's the approach to prayer, the introduction in verses 14 and 15. And then Paul's prayer is made up of three petitions. Um, The ESV brings them out with the word that in verse 16. That, according to the riches of his glory, he might give you to be strengthened. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Now here's where the ESV is unhelpful. The, the that that begins verse 17 eh, isn't really, 
It's not a separate petition. The next petition really is verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend. Then his third petition um, is in verse uh, 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So I'll give you your, your blanks here. If point number two, that he might give to you all. His, his second petition, that you all might be able, might be, have the ability to do something. Third petition, that you might be filled. So grammatically, Paul has these three that's followed by subjunctive verbs, for those of you who care, um, verbs of possibility, and then further explained by infinitives. That's, that's the structure. So I, I only make that point to say different translations try to line this up differently. And Paul's got three petitions that are further clarified by infinitives. So in our first petition, you see how there's content. Point B is content. Point C is content. He's got two ways of clarifying it. That's sort of the structure. Paul's going to introduce the prayer with three petitions that I think develop on each other. They're sequential. They build... And he closes with a doxology. So that's a structure that I, I see in Paul's prayer that I'll be going through. We'll be looking at Paul's introduction to prayer in his first petition this morning. And then we'll be moving forward in the coming weeks. So, with that by way of introduction, let's dive into Paul's approach to prayer. Now, he repeats the phrase he started chapter 3 with, for this reason. And then you've got to ask, for what reason? Well, in one sense, and here's your blank, for all that God has done for them, all that he's listed, and we could rehearse all that God has done for them in in Christ. Go back to chapter 1. For what reason? Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 8, he lavished on us. Verse 9, made known to us. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we were sealed to the promised Holy Spirit. Then you move into chapter 2, what else has he done for us? Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. He seated us with him. Chapter 2, on the second contrast, verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 19, we are fellow citizens, members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit for this reason. Now, I think most specifically in Paul's mind is that final contrast, those last glorious truths that end chapter 2. I think that will become more clear as we move forward. But Paul's prayer functions at the end of this section of doctrine, grabbing, I think, all of what he said, even if the emphasis that he's going to focus on is the end of chapter 2. For all of these glorious truths, Paul adopts a posture of prayer. Point B, he says, I bow my knee. Now, there's no, again, sanctified, more holy way to pray than any other. The scripture gives us many patterns for prayer. The most common Jewish pattern is to stand praying. There's also examples of people praying, falling on their face on the ground. So what's the significance of Paul indicating kneeling, which is a less common pattern? Well, as best as we can tell, kneeling, and here's your blank, indicates submissive prayer, submissive prayer. 
the bowing of a knee. The notion of submission is to place yourself under someone, and by kneeling on the ground, there's a sort of physical way of demonstrating that. We see that in uh, the use of this word in Romans 14. As it's written, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. Or Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. So the bending of the knee is, is Paul's way of indicating this prayer is a submissive prayer. He's coming before a, a king or an authority or a power, which makes his, his next word surprising. His prayer is for power. The first petition is for power, that God would give power. And power has been a theme through this letter up to this point. And you'd think you're bowing your knee, you want power. You'd think he might be addressing God as king or Lord. Calls him father. What's the significance of that? Well, before the father, Paul first is demonstrating our access. He's demonstrating our access. This is one of the reasons why I think he's most firmly got in his mind the wonderful truths at the end of chapter 2. What does he say at the end of chapter 2? Look at 2.17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So by talking about his prayer being addressed to the Father, Paul is modeling from a prison cell the very access he has just declared that we have. So that's one of the links right there. He tells us that we have, through the Spirit, access to the Father. And then he says, and for this reason I bow my knee, utilizing the, own, the, the access he himself has to the Father. There's another reason, I think, why he highlights the, the truth that God is Father here. And that is because he still has in his mind the, the urge, the, the challenge, the exhortation that we act like a unified family. Certainly that's on the other side of the bridge. Look at chapter 4, where chapter 4 picks up. At the conclusion of this prayer, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called with one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is in of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So absolutely, where Paul lands in chapter 4 is maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's one body. Maintain that unity. What's he just come out of before this prayer? Jesus has fashioned in himself one new unified man in the place of two. He's told us that we're members of God's household. And so one of the ways we can look at the rest of this book is the father of the household, the Lord of the household, instructing his children and family members how to conduct themselves in that household. Verse chapter 2, verse 19, members of the household of God. So I think that's one of the reasons also why he is beseeching God as father. Also bear in mind, and I've tried to highlight this in the outline, that these, these prayer petitions are plural. He's praying for them all. And one of the other things I have to undo or fight against sometimes is as a Westerner, I'm so hardwired to think individualistically. Um, and there are, we've talked about this before, that n- no one can believe for you. No one can repent for you. No one can trust in Christ for you. You have to do that one by one, individually. We all do that. But as we're saved, we're saved into a body. And so as Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, 
And we'll see next week, he's also praying for all of us. He's praying a corporate prayer. And so to help remind them, I think, that of their unity. Remember, you've got people who are, are Jews, historically, again, trained to despise, to look down upon, to recoil against, to separate themselves from Gentiles. Now being told, no, you've got to eat with them. You've got to worship with them. He's, he's reminding them, we have one father. And that picks up in the next phrase. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Which is, again, a strange way to identify God. What's, what's he getting at? Well, I think what he's getting at here is that every family ultimately finds its author in God. There's a play on words in Greek here. The, the father is the patras, and then the name for family is patria. He prays to the patras from every patria is named. This is a play on words. And so the notion of family really is any group that comes from a singular descendant. Any family line or tree or grouping or tribe, if you will. Um, that word for family is used in um, Luke 2. Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage or family of David. Joseph's a descendant of David. And so especially in Paul's day, uh, who your genetic tribe was, in the culture, at least, it hardwired you for where your loyalties were and who your friends were and who your enemies were. And Paul is highlighting that this father he's praying to is, to use a phrase, here's your next blank, he's the king of kings, but you're blank. He's also the father of fathers. And I want to pause and remind you of this wonderful truth as well, that it's not the fact that God, when he tries to reveal himself to man, says, you know, um, what can I, how can I describe myself as? I know that that father-son thing that I see, it's sort of like that. That's not what's going on. As if our relationships and our family relationships are the real thing. And then God says, well, something's sort of like that. No, it's the exact opposite. I would suggest that God created the family and God created fatherhood as a way for us to better know who he is and what he's like and what his relationship with the son is. I mean, in fact, that's, t- turn to chapter 5 real fast. We see that's the reality with marriage. Why does marriage exist? To picture Christ in the church. The reality is Christ in the church, and then God creates a shadow of it in our world so that when he comes to tell us about what salvation is like and what Christ's relationship to the church is like, there are pictures, there are metaphors, there are institutions that reflect that. L- look at, look at 531. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoa, you mean in Genesis 2, God had Christ and the church in mind? Yep. One of the reasons marriage exists is so that we have something by which God can say, what, what salvation is like, what Christ's relationship to his bride, the church, the corporate people of God is like, it's kind of like a marriage between a husband and a wife. And the reality, the original model is Christ and the church. The derivative is our institutions. So Paul is bending his knee to the father of fathers, to the original pattern and source, the creator, the author of all tribes, of all peoples, 
He's turning to that one. There's also a, an echo of God's promise to, to Abraham in here as well. Listen to the, this word for families is, is not used very often in the New Testament. It's used in Luke, and it's used one other place, and it's used in Acts 3. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So in the Greek translation of, of Genesis 15, um, the promise that God made to Abraham, that in Abraham and in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Same word. So here's the God of all families who through Abraham's seed intends to bless all families. Paul's praying to him. That's who Paul's praying to. So Paul's taking a submissive posture before the father of fathers, praying. And now we move to our first petition. What's he praying for? For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the first petition is in verses 16 and 17. Your blank there is that he might give to you all. He might give to you all. So Paul says, I pray that God might give to you all two things. That he might give you to be strengthened with power, and then he might give you that Christ might dwell in your hearts. That's the structure. But before we get to that, he gives a proportion. So he wants God to give something to the believers in Corinth, Ephesus, Corinth. But first we get the proportion. In your blank, there was a cording to the riches of his glory. Now again, the riches of God's glory is something that Paul has spoken of at length in Ephesians. Turn back, if you will, to chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And if you read through 3 through 14, you'll see again and again Paul stacking up terms to speak of how rich and abundant God is in grace and goodness and good things. But I want you to get the significance of this, of this preposition. He doesn't say, I want God to give you something from his riches, but according to his riches. Let me, let me give you an analogy of what I mean. Imagine a millionaire shows up to a charity event and he makes a donation. Whatever that donation is will be from his riches, whether it's a dollar, whether it's $5, whether it's $50, Whatever gift he gives will come from his riches. But what does it mean for a millionaire to give according to his riches, in keeping with his riches, corresponding to it? It means he's giving far, far more than you or I would give, right? You can't speak of a millionaire giving out according to his riches if he gives $50, if he even gives $100. You probably have got to get up into the thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to be giving in accordance with, in keeping with your riches, and here Paul is saying, I want God to give you something, but I want the lavishness of this gift to correspond to the lavishness of God's riches of glory. Which is to say, a lot. A great lot. <laughs> Paul is going to struggle for words to speak of the magnitude of, of the things he's asking for us. He's bold in his prayers. And so the first point of specificity is Paul is 
asking for a heaping helping of whatever it is he's asking for, this giving. I want you to give them something, and I want that gift to be in accordance with and keeping with the pattern of the fullness of the riches of your glory. In proportion to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory. And then we get to our first infinitive. Now, Paul has two things he wants God to give. And the ESV does not bring it out as clearly that these things are parallel. Um, But I, I hope you'll see this. And I think there are two things that really are one thing. Two things that are really one thing. So we'll take them one at a time and take a look at them. The first is, I want you to give them, according to the riches of your glory, um, that he may grant or gift you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your being. So the first content, as he defines what this gift is, is to be strengthened with power. To be strengthened with power. Again, no new theme here. In fact, Paul's prayer here in chapter 3 mirrors in many respects his prayer at the end of chapter 1. We'll go back to chapter 1 where we'll see again this prayer for power. Chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now there, he was asking that we might understand, through God's Spirit, the power available. Here, Paul is calling upon that power in practice. So in the first prayer, I pray that God, by His Spirit, might help you just understand how big, wonderful, and powerful the things you and I are caught up in are. What type of power is available from the throne of God? Here, he's asking for it, and he's asking for it liberally. He's not asking for little power. A little strength. He's, he's asking for strength that comes in accordance with, in keeping with the riches of God's glory. So the content, to be strengthened with power. And, ju- and what we get here is not just that, but how. How would how you strengthen with power? Well, he's very specific again, through God's spirit. And what we've got here is now a Trinitarian working again. He's praying to the Father. He's praying that the Father might give power through his spirit. But he's also praying that Christ may dwell in the heart. So you'll see even in this prayer, the Trinity at work. Paul has a Trinitarian vision for the Ephesian church's growth. He has a Trinitarian vision for the working of God for their good, for our good. He's praying to the Father, beseeching the Father that in keeping with, in proportion to the glory, the riches of his glory, he would grant or gift them to be strengthened with power. And notice the source, it's through the Spirit. It's not strengthened with power through any other means. We need, every day, God's power from God's Spirit. And we need it in a particular location. Where? Notice the content of where now. To the inner man. The inner man. Yeah, I know the ESV has your inner being. But it's just the inner man. It seems to be a phrase Paul invents 
As best we can tell, he uses the same phrase in Romans 7. But turn to 2 Corinthians 4, I think to help give us an idea of what Paul is talking about when he says inner man. Your inner man. What's the inner man? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've got some inkling of what he's talking about. Verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this night light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is praying that God would give a liberal large, lavish supply of power by the agency of his spirit. And contrary to most of my prayers and most of our prayers, it's not for the outer man. It's not for our physical bodies. There are examples in Scripture of praying for health. In the New Testament, they're far outweighed by prayers for spiritual health. But here, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is not for their physical health that they'd get over the cold, that they'd recover from the disease, is for their inner man. In fact, when you do hear prayers for physical health, you get convicting prayers like 3 John 1, 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. There's a convicting prayer. Lord, I pray that they'd be as healthy physically as they are spiritually. That's 3 John 1, 2. Paul's prayer is not focused externally. Not that there's anything wrong. There are examples. Paul talks about how God spared Epaphroditus for his sake from his sickness. There are examples. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for physical health. It's what aren't we praying for that I'm trying to get at here. And Paul's overriding concern for the Ephesians is not their physical well-being, but their spiritual well-being. He's praying that this power be directed not to their outer man, but to their inner man. He's praying for power towards the inner man man. And what does that mean? Well, I think the next infinitive helps makes it clear what it means. The ESV makes this progressive, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, but that's not the structure of, the, of what Paul actually wrote. What you have is, I want God to give you to be strengthened and to have Christ dwell. And I think they speak of the same thing. I think he's naming the same thing twice. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit To give me power and to strengthen me? I think it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Notice also here you have the same pattern. You have the infinitive, something to happen. You have a location, where, and you have the how, the agency, through faith. So the first is to be strengthened with power. How? Through the spirit. Where? In the inner man. Second, for Christ to dwell. Where? In your hearts. How? Through faith. They're parallel. They parallel each other. So the second description of this gift is that Christ may dwell. Now this may strike you as odd because he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, if you turn back in Ephesians to chapter 1, who he's already explicitly made clear have the Spirit. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's writing to Christians who have already received and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So what does he mean? I'm praying. And he's praying with such specificity that God would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power by his spirit to your inner man. That is, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't Christ already dwelling in their hearts through faith? Isn't Christ already dwelling in our hearts through faith? Well, he is, but I don't think that gets the implication of the verb, to dwell I think the idea is more of the take-up residence. Um, I, I moved into our new home last year. Serena and my family are still settling down. We're still taking up residence. And if you've ever moved into a fixer-upper, you know what it's like to move in and have a long laundry list of projects. See, Stacy's nodding with me here. A long list of projects of things you want to do and there's a sense which you won't really feel settled in. You won't really feel comfortable and at peace till you get these things done. And over time, the house begins to reflect more of you. I'll use my mother's example because she's not here. Don't tell her. But we had rooms prepared for her. But as she moved in, began to unpack and put up more of her things, I remember showing my sisters a photo from last week or so. And they said, oh, it looks just like mom's place. And, and it's a bad way of saying it, but what they meant is, at this point, enough of her um, possessions, enough of her style and taste was evident that there's a continuity between where she'd lived in New Hampshire, where she lived in Martinsdale, where she lives now in Norwalk. It looks like her. She was taking up residence. Now, there's a real sense that back on December 19th, she took up residence. But I suspect in the coming days, months, even years, she, we all be taking up more and more residence in, in our home. And I think that's the idea here. Yes, there is a moment in time where Christ's spirit took up residence in you. But how at home does he feel and how much does the residence look like its owner and master? This is part of the reason why I think he's got the end of chapter 2 in mind. Because look at, look at verse 21 of chapter 2. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So there's an active, ongoing process where we corporately, and here's where corporate matters, we corporately are a renovation project, a building project. We are being built into a dwelling for God. And here he's praying for Christ to dwell in our hearts. And so I think the notion is as the building's being built, there's more of the house for the Lord to dwell in. He's more at ease in his new residence. That, that's what he's praying for. And I think that explains why it takes power. If you've, if you've done any renovation projects in your home, you know that that takes work, you know, taking down the wallpaper, knocking out this wall, putting in a window here, adding in a room there. Something like that is in view here. Christ is dwelling in our hearts, and he wants God through his spirit in keeping with the abundance of the riches of his glory to give power so that Christ might more and more dwell, live in his new home, his people, his church. He wants him to dwell and take up residence. In Galatians 4.19, Paul speaks of this way, Christ being fully formed in you. There's different metaphors you can use. 
So, so where is Christ dwelling? He's dwelling in our hearts, which is to say the inner man. I think in our hearts parallels inner man from the first petition. It's one of the reasons why I think be strengthened with power and for Christ to dwell speak of the same thing. Just as inner man and heart correspond. This is the immaterial being. This is the spiritual you. You and I are physical spirit beings. We're not souls who have bodies. We, we are soul body people. Um, that's actually one of the errors we're to deal with in that series that's, that's coming up in a few weeks. But the Bible does distinguish between our outer person, our outer man, and our inner man. And Christ is dwelling on the inside, in the inner man of each and every one of us. And so Paul is bowing the knee to the Father from every tribe and every family on earth is sourced, generated, and named. And he's praying to him that he might give all of us, and don't miss the corporate notion, he might give all of us immense power and strength through his spirit to our inner being so that Christ might more and more dwell in us. Do you see how this is setting up the, the instructions for the second half of the book? Do you see how that's the, the picture of how we're to obey the commands in the second half of the book? This is what, the, in one sense, I was talking to Pastor Daniel. This is the summary of the Christian life right here. That Christ might more and more dwell, take up residence in our hearts. And notice, through faith. The Christian life begins with faith. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. And the Christian life, even though there is hard work to be done, continues with faith. Continues with faith. And so this is a corporate prayer. I've read this hundreds of times and just thought of myself, and I'm God's dwelling place. But the picture here and the, the imagery of the Father, the end of chapter 2, is clearly corporate. This is the vision for the church growing. The church as the Lord's dwelling place. Just like, look at the end of chapter 2. In him, verse 22, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Being built together. Look over at chapter 4, right where he's going to next. Look at verse 15 and 16. How does the church grow? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now we're using a body metaphor. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's the picture for church growth and church maturity. Each and every part, Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith, and each and every part, more and more the Lord at ease in his home, taking up residence, the body working together that's going to take the power that he's asking for. But that's really everything he's getting at in the second half of the book. So if you're a believer here this morning, Christ lives in your heart. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. How at home is he? How much does his home resemble him? That's, that's what Paul's praying about here. That Christ may dwell, take up residence in your hearts through faith. Now, I'm going to disagree again with the ESV on this point. They take, most translations take, the King James doesn't. Um, they take the following phrase the, at the end of verse um, 17 to go with the next clause. That being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength comprehend with all the saints. I, I disagree. Grammatically, just trust me, it's weird for that to be the case. But more to the point, grounded literally is foundationed. 
We're still using a building metaphor, which most naturally links with what came before. He wants Christ to dwell in a home, and that home needs a foundation. So I do think that this outcome, point D here, sets up the next petition. The next petition is built upon it, in a sense. But I think it, it gives us the outcome. He wants God to give liberally, generously, richly, power through his spirit to the inner man, Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. He, he wants God to give those things with the resulting outcome that they're rooted and grounded in love. And this is a picture of stability. Because, of course, if the Spirit is giving us this power, if Christ is dwelling in all of our hearts through faith, then we are going to be stable. Oh, look in chapter 4. That's the exact lesson we get. Look at 4.14, right before that last passage I read. Verse 14. So that we are no longer to be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's unstable. You ever see a styrofoam cup in the middle of a white-capped lake? We're not to be that. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We're to be stable. And so the result, if God would answer Paul's prayer, if the Spirit would strengthen us with power to our inner man, if Christ might more and more dwell in our hearts through faith, then we will be in the state of having been rooted and grounded in love. Having been rooted in love and having been founded in love. Now there's two metaphors here. There's a botanical metaphor of a, of a plant and an architectural metaphor of a building. That architectural metaphor links right back up with what we just said, taking residence, which links right back up to the end of chapter 2, we're being built into a temple. Which is more reasons why I think it goes with this first petition. And so it's a picture of stability. It also helps indicate whose love this is. You know, you read this, you're like, okay, we're in the ground in love. What, our love we're being loving? No. Go back to chapter 1. That's not the foundation that the house is built upon. The, found, the house's foundation is not our love. That might be the third floor. The house's foundation, look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. There's in love. There's the foundation of the house. The foundation of our church is God's love. The bedrock. Here's the picture I want you to get. The bedrock that the house sits upon. The bedrock that the foundation is built upon is God's eternal love for his people. In eternity past, in love, God chose you. Chose me. He chose his people. And in that bedrock, granite, unshakable, unmovable bedrock, the foundation of this temple is being built. It's secure. God's love does not waver and come and go. It's not capricious or fickle. It is eternal. In eternity past, in love, he predestined us. And on that solid foundation, the foundation of the temple is being built. Or another way to use it is the botanical metaphor. In that rich soil, the tree is taking root and being built up. Listen to Jeremiah 12, 2. You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth. 
and far from their heart. Now there's a negative picture, but it's a picture of planting. You think of Psalm 1, the tree that's planted by the river. Now it is primarily a picture of, of strength. Even a dead tree, if its roots are down, you know this if you tried to clear brush or land, it can be hard to get out. It's a picture of stability. So Paul has been thinking about the Ephesian church. They're a healthy church. This isn't to combat any particular error. But he knows storms are coming. He knows that trials are coming. And he knows they need to be more and more like Jesus. So he's very specific. God, they need your power. And they need an awful lot of it. They need it by your spirit to their inner man. That is, they need Christ taking up more and more residence in their hearts through faith which will result in them being in a state of having been rooted and grounded in love. And that solid position then becomes the the springboard for the second petition that we'll look at next week. The way I like to look at it is he wants them to see something. He wants them to have a grand vision of something. And you, you can't see very clearly if you're on something that's unstable. But being rooted and grounded in love, he wants them to get a vision together with all of the saints, which is where I think he folds in all Christians everywhere, the height, the breadth, depth, the love of Christ. So as we prepare for our closing song, I just challenge you to start taking cues from the way God teaches us to pray in his word. Add to your prayer list. Don't subtract. Add to your prayer list the things Paul prays for. Give thought to how to pray, what to pray for. You're not going to pray like this off the cuff. Only after thinking, what, what is really needful? For my family, what is really needful for my friend? What is really needful for this church? And then prioritize the matters that that Paul prioritized, that God prioritizes. Spiritual health, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. Because the implications of this prayer is God is happy to give. I'm going to call the worship team up now as they creep forward. Um, Sorry, being unclear there. And we are going to sing our, our closing song. Please stand with me. Let's make this our prayer as well this morning.